So something that I've learned over time is, is that many South Asian brides have PTSD from their wedding. And it's just from outfit sourcing alone, because not only do they have to find 10 outfits for themselves, right? Then they have to do the family, then they have to do the bridal party. And then they have all these people messaging that they've invited as wedding guests. And as you know, the average South Asian wedding does not have 120 guests, right? <laughs> Times up by five or sometimes even 10. Um, Welcome, welcome to the Bloomex podcast. How are you doing? So grateful to be here. Another day in paradise, as I always say. No matter what, <laughs> no matter what our circumstances are, I always say it. So it seems awesome. to, to help. That's a that's a positive way of looking through things. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So you're calling in from New York. Um, you run like a, a fashion fashion tech kind of uh, company. Uh, Want to hear more about it and jump right into that. So. <clears throat> Lindsay, can you quick give a quick preview of uh, your, you know, what you're doing? Sure thing. I'm the founder of Preserve. It's launching here in a couple weeks, and it's a platform for global fashion. And it all stemmed out of a need um, starting to date my now fiance five five years ago. Uh, so he's Indian, and and five years ago, uh, I needed 15 outfits for three Indian weddings. And first of all, couldn't believe that I needed 15 outfits. And second of all, didn't realize how difficult it was to source these outfits. I mean, it was literally a nine month part-time dedicated job uh, to to get them all. And I thought there's gotta be a better way. And, and equally on this journey, I fell in love with all the hand embroidery and the beading work um, that these Indian designers offered and couldn't believe that, you know, America didn't know about these designers and wear them. So I'm creating a platform for Indian, Pakistani, and eventually designers all over the world to really just honor their cultures and advocate artisanship. And, and lastly, I really want to help give back to modern slavery, which is a huge issue in the garment industry. So hmm. that's, uh, that's a lot to digest. Um, you know, especially the, the last part you want to do it. Let's, let's break that into parts because that's super fascinating. So <clears throat> especially the textile industry and, and Indian fashion, it's a huge long-standing tradition behind that. Um, it, one of the, the, literally one of the first automations to, to ever be made, like the first machine was the, the hand loom that the Europeans made to compete with Indian textile manufacturing because uh, the quality of manufacturing from, from South Asia was so good and immense and there was such a huge labor force for that. Uh, the European uh, kind of response to that to be able to compete in a global market space was to you know, uh, lower the cost through automation. And it literally became the the the, the first um, machine, the fr and, and sparked like the innovation revolution, right? The first industrial revolution. Sorry. Um, so this this industry you're in is like a huge landscape, you know, huge huge impact when it comes to innovation and global markets places. And I, I love that idea that uh, you know you kind of experience this, you know, uh, jumping in through through your husband and seeing how this whole culture and and, and uh, experience is. You know, being South Asian, uh, we experience this a lot as well. Uh, I'm I'm in Toronto where there's a huge South Asian population, much like New York, uh, but unlike American culture in, in in Canada, there's much more of a multiculturalism, right? Where uh, you know friends friends love having uh, going to the multicultural friends, uh, you know, weddings and and parties and events. Because you get to dress up in different cultures and uh, try different foods and experience that, you know, 
uh, some of my favorite weddings are going to like you know uh, uh, some of my Muslim friends' weddings or like you know Sikh friends because it's just a different variety from what you're used to. And you know, in in South Asia, especially, there's a huge variety of different cultures and 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 different ethnicities and and different things coming up. So I'd love to know more about you know your um you know experience diving into this, right? You know, how did it feel like you know to get immersed into that through through your uh, through your partner and uh, uh, and experience those cultures? Well, learning about the Indian culture was definitely a culture shock, if you will. I went in very uh, naive and didn't know much about it and was super excited to learn. Um, you know, one thing that I found shocking was the gender disparity. And, um, you know, we can complain as women all we want here, but in other countries, it's a lot uh, worse. But when it comes to the culture itself, I I found myself just going down rabbit holes uh, on Instagram, like looking at these videos of karigars, right? And, 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 and realizing that some of the, the weaving patterns or the, the prints, they have been passed down from generation to generation. And, and why not preserve that, right? And why not showcase that and show that artisanship instead of, you know, 20 different seasons that Zara publishes every year? Um, and, and there's a huge sustainability aspect with, with this, right? So we're allowing the ability to rent these outfits. And we're going from what has been considered, um, you know, excessive consumerism, right? And that was all uh, spun off by the Industrial Revolution. So we were just like in this, like, way too much consumerism. And now thanks to millennials and Gen Zers who are very much more consciously aware of their thoughts, words, and uh, behaviors, they um, are, we're moving into a sharing economy. And, and uh, I joke, but this is serious. So uh, Gen Zers are, you know, renting everything from their, their cars to their homes, um, art, and even family. You can rent a grandma in Japan. You can rent a grandma, <laughs> so that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the idea of the sharing economy is really interesting because, on one hand, uh, you know we have people who understand that you know owning a car is super expensive, right? Um, it, you know, having to deal with ownership, maintaining it, you know, housing it, keeping it somewhere in a space, especially in a city environment, it's there. And like Uber comes along, and now you know in in, in metropolitan areas, people are like, I just Uber if I need a, I need a car. Or, or like rent a car if I need a car. Why, why own this, right? And it really kickstarted this conversation around it, uh, around the sharing economies. But when it comes to clothes, it's really interesting because it's like people want to own the clothes. People don't want to share other people's clothes. People feel identity to that, right? So can you talk a little bit more about like the cultural aspects of like ownership when it comes to clothing? Ownership when it comes to clothing. So we are we are catering towards the wedding guests that are not necessarily a part of the family because I, you know, fully aware of the cultural aspect where, you know, you even have um, saris that are passed down that are that have like go actual gold, you know, weaved into them. Uh, we are not touching that sort of uh, tradition, but many of, of the wedding guests are just they're they're desperate. At, at this point of, of trying to find outfits that are 
financially feasible because you know you only wear them once because everybody's invited to every wedding it seems um which is why i needed 15 outfits that first year right like everybody was invited to every wedding i couldn't repurpose anything um so we're helping out with those times where women aren't wearing family heirlooms which is a much greater than need than um people realize that even the south asian community in the united states realizes so because of interracial marriages which is um it depends on who you talk to right like some say it's 80 percent of south asian marriages are interracial i think that's very high so we're being conservative and saying that 50 percent of south asian marriages in the u.s are interracial so because of that uh the demand for outfits is skyrocketing so not only do you need outfits for the south asian population which is the fastest growing in the u.s as well um, you need people like that look like me who are required to wear just as many outfits as an Indian wife. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure how the experience is in New York, but in um, for shopping for like cultural wear in uh, in Toronto is horrendous customer service. It's like. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I got to tell you a story. Yeah. So uh, that is Robbie like one of my horror stories of sourcing outfits I equate it to Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman when she goes to Rodeo Drive I was gonna mention that exact scene <laughs> yeah big mistake big mistake that's mm -hmm. the that's to sum it up that's exactly what I experienced when I went to Jackson Heights uh in New York when I went to Edison I was basically shooed out of stores and hmm. and I had to stop going by myself um, and, and not only that, I mean, I, I paid, I talk about overinflation, right? Like, you know, some people call it the white people tax and I'm pretty sure that that's what I paid. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so um, the, so in, in sorry stores, right? Like in, in, in Tamil, we call them sorry kade, it's like kade means store. And like, there's this archetype of like the, the saleswoman, like the, the women who run it, they're like elitist, like just like, uh, just like the pretty woman, um, you know, uh, when she goes, when she first goes into the store, and all you, all, all the salespeople, quote unquote salespeople, customer service, the staff, just kind of turn your nose at you and be like, "Why are you even here?" They're all like that, and not just that. Like they give you so much attitude and like uh, all the stuff. Like and it's like a cultural thing, right? And the type of women who go into that are like super aggressive and assertive type of females. And um, it's it's a hundred percent. So I experienced getting married to myself, and I I you know I, I've only gone there, gone into like these stores a few handful of times, but went there with my wife, my sister, my mom, you know, to deck them out for my wedding. And I'm like, oh my god, like there's a reason why men don't come like coming here and shopping here. Right, got to avoid these places as much as you can. Um, so let's let's move on from this experience, right? You, you know, you you know, you experienced this personally. You saw some some, uh, some holes and gaps. One that you see the need and the growing need in marketplace. Two, the the customer service and the problems there. And three, like the knowledge gap there that needs to be transferred between you know people who want to participate in this in this uh, retail industry. So, how did that equate to you launching a, a business around this? Oh gosh, it was the hardest thing. Um, it was the hardest decision I've ever made, to be honest. I worked for my father for 20 years and I helped the family business and I, I had one and a half feet out the door. I, I was ready to do my own thing and I really wanted to do this idea, but I'll be honest, I'm a white woman, right? Like how, how does I talk about optics? How does that look? Right. Especially when South Asians are very, um, attached to their culture and, and by no means do I ever want to appropriate 
right? Um, and, and, and it took two years, two years for Shiv's family and all of his friends to really just push me and be like, Lindsay, you are the most qualified for this. Like, screw what other people say. Like, you're not appropriating, you're helping the community because that's mm. really what I'm doing. I want to create a platform to help South Asian creative shine, right? And eventually global uh, designers from other uh, countries. And the other thing is, is, you know, there's a competitive company here in the US, it's valued at a billion dollars, and they, they pride themselves on being a technology and logistics company. But the issue with that is that their technology is self-didacting, meaning they're gathering data on their customers, which is great, right? But their main customer are white women in the metropolitan area. So what do they do? They make more outfits to please those white women leaving out so and causing a you know a mound full of underrepresentation to happen mm -hmm. so i'm trying to combat not combat that but bring in more representation to underrepresented <clears throat> communities yeah. um and that's what fuels me <laughs> so um i so you know i was really just pushed into it by friends and family that's... otherwise i wouldn't have done it <laughs> yeah i mean it's great to have that kind of support um absolutely all right, more moving into that. But again, I mean, one thing you also outlined is that, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, Caucasian and other cultural folks who are, who are needing access to this market. Interracial marriage is becoming more available, right? Who else than someone who's experienced this on the other end, you know, having to cross over the boundary of, you know, of cultural norms uh, and have to experience it from, uh, from, from like, you know, the, the primary perspective, you can appreciate this from that point of view as well, right? So that allows you to address that market. I can appreciate it. I, and I, I want to help improve in women's lives. That is our overall goal is to help improve women's lives. Because conversely, if you look at, let's say, Black Talks, Black Talks is an amazing rental company. A man can just easily go on and rent a tux. You can actually curate outfits for the entire uh, wedding party or a family. So it, it really just shows kind of the gap in funding, right? So only 2% of funding goes towards uh, women mm -hmm. and uh, less than 1% goes to uh, BIPOC. And, and it shows just from a rental perspective because we women, South Asian women, should deserve the ability to be able to wear their cultural clothing just as much as a man can rent a tux. And a woman needs so many more outfits than a man. So why hasn't this problem been solved? And it really goes down to a systemic issue of uh, inequalities to, in terms of wealth distribution. So it is so much deeper than just renting pretty dresses for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, cool. I mean, I, I like how you broke it down to that kind of problem. Um, let, let's let's talk a little bit about the business side of things, and then uh, you know rope back into the into into the impact. Um, so on the business side of things, like you know this rental rental uh, retail um, uh, the rental industry right really popped off with Rent the Runway. Uh, mm -hmm. I think about ten years ago, launched in New York, uh, right, and became like a hundred million dollar company, right. Uh, it took a while, and you know they had a really good podcast on how I built this, you know, with the, with the founders of Rent the Runway. And she talked, and the, and the founder was talking about, you know, the struggle it was to, you know, prove this model and get it going. But, you know, now that you have, we have this like uh, flag to point, I'm like, look, this model actually works. How can we improve upon this? Like, where, where did, where did your mind stay? Like, how did you, uh, you know, first start this project and uh, where are you right now? Where's the state of the company? 
That's a really good question, Robbie. Because I just because Renzo Runway, who is now actually valued at seven hundred and fifty million, mm. um, I still have to prove the concept because um, you know primarily the, these investors are white men. They have no idea about the need, right, and the demand, which is increasing by twenty percent, and and so I have to now it, it, it basically just forget whatever Rent the Runway did paving the way because it doesn't matter. Investors don't care, so I'm having to do that. I'm also have to take even more steps, um, where you know I have to show. Well, I'll just I'll just tell you, uh, fundraising as a female is so much more difficult than I ever thought it was. Um, you know, just last week I had a, uh, an investor message me and his response to I'm a female founder, CEO. He said, you're going to make an amazing bride. That what? was his response. Swear to God. Swear to God. So I have now put Shiv, my fiance, as co-founder on the pitch deck. And I now have him attend every single meeting with me. The pitch doesn't change. Nothing changes. The only thing that's changed is that I have a male presence on the meeting. And now I'm getting further into the due diligence process. I'm telling you, this is how bad it is. It's mm. so bad. Um, if I were single, I'd be asked out. I was just talking to a, a VC uh, last night, this woman, uh, uh, keep her anonymous, but she has a, a VC firm that only funds women. And she told me last night, within the last two weeks, she got asked out four times by investors. <laughs> oh my God. That's horrible. Yeah. I'm, I'm just it's, laughing because of the authority of it. Like, it's it's so much worse than than you would ever think. I, I and I was honestly surprised, Robbie, because you know I, I worked for my father for so long, so I was I was somewhat protected from these elements. And uh, now that I'm on my own, it's you know it's 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 a fair playing field. What did you what, what did your family do? So they own a company called C Suite Network, which is a network for C level executives. Wow. Right. Talk about male dominated society and and um, which then, again, fueled my desire to want to create a business to help w improve women's lives. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Cool. Uh, so uh, you, know, you come from this entrepreneurial family, clearly, and, you know, you have this background of supporting in that. Let's let's talk about the, the business side of things. Right. Like, uh, like, you know, where is this uh, stand? Like, are you creating a marketplace? Is it an app? Um, how, how does this uh, how does the, how does the business function? Yes. Sorry, I went on off, off on a tangent no, a little no. bit, but we uh, we're launching. We're taking pre-orders now. Uh, it will be a website initially. We're launching with 25 designers and really going after emerging and established artists. Like a lot of these are so. Sorry, not to cut you off, but are, will these are uh, creatives or artists? Will they will they produce, provide their, uh, their 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 clothes as uh, as rentable? Like, they it... pro we take care of the entire in infrastructure. Think Rent the Runway, but meets global designers. Gotcha. Yeah. And what's really cool, Ravi, is like you can wear. So some of these will be your, um, you know, your recognized Indian outfits like lehengas or pre-pleated saris. Uh, but we're also offering outfits that uh, a non-South Asian feel confident in wearing to a cocktail party um, or, you know, a speaking engagement or a photo shoot without appropriating, right? Like you can wear Indian designers on a Tuesday and not have to wear them to an Indian wedding. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. So uh, let's talk about you know your experience with this. Like, have you you know were you the alpha user? Uh, did you rent any article, any any things yourselves uh, from uh, from um, uh, from these designers? Absolutely. I um, well, I was a rent a runway user since beta. Gotcha. So I'm a very loyal fan. And um, but you know, as as the time went on, the the options for me to rent were decreased in terms of of what i opted into because i'm i'm not a typical uh white woman from the suburbs and and i'm actually not literally i live in new mm. york city yeah yeah <laughs> so, our aesthetic <laughs> so, is a bit different yeah so i mean uh, going to that right like um so uh, our market is a little different so uh, I, I, I'm Sri Lanka. I'm, I'm from Sri Lanka, and like there's a Sri Lankan community that's really big in, in North America, about 400,000, which is separate from from the kind of culturally from India, but also South Asia itself with a whole mix of cultures, right? Um, you know, there's multicultural impacts. How, can you, you know, can you talk about like, you know, uh, how how do you just, uh, choose your your creators or designers? How do you find them? Um, since they're splattered around so many different cultures and different, uh, you know, et ethnic lines. Is it because it's New York, you know, that there are just just creatives everywhere? Uh, yeah. Well, there there's only five designers based in the U.S. All okay. the rest of them are based in Pakistan and India. And it's just been my years of researching and just falling in love trying to find amazing designers. There's a couple websites that I have in my my arsenal that I will keep close to my heart that I uh, discover designers. But again, they, you know, some of them will be recognizable, very uh, high-end, well-known designers, but some of them are, you know, you won't recognize their name, but you will freak out once you see the stuff that they create. I mean, we're talking like, like crystals that you wear, like an actual crystals that sit around um, your house that they make into necklaces and, and belts. Like, I just can't wait to, to launch. It's so exciting. Cool. So, uh, do you, uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned, do you have a launch date? When's that coming up? It's coming up. Well, uh, next week we're going to have our website. So next week will be, uh, April 20th and then we'll, really cool. yeah. So taking pre-orders for any event, July 15th and beyond. Cool. Um, so how does it work? Is it um, only New York citizens, uh, New York area people? Is it locked? USA? USA. USA. Yeah. Okay, locked the USA. Okay. Um, so anyone from across the US can do this? Like, uh, how does it how does it work? You just go on the site um, and pick the days that you need to rent for. And it's a four to seven day rental. Uh, eventually, we'll be having a monthly membership where you're able to to rent a few uh, times a month. So um, you know, and, and, and again, seeking any designer. So if anyone wants to reach out to me and wants a designer on board, I'm happy to entertain it. Hmm. So that's really interesting. A subscription portal for, you know, rentable South Asian gear. That's a, that's, that's, that's different. Um, I've heard of like, uh, more marketplaces coming up and in, in, in Toronto, there's two companies that we, we, we have talked to, um, that are in a similar space. Um, you know, providing uh, cultural uh, rentable clothes or, or like um, luxury uh, items that can be rented out. But I think your model is really interesting. One, subscription-based. Two, uh, it's, it's working directly with, um, you know, artists and like you know, people who are making these, these custom nice, like, uh, like the high-end stuff. Um, can you talk a little about the target audience? Like um, who, who do you expect to be your users and how are you trying to find them? 
Um, well, it's mostly word of mouth to begin with, which is always the best way, right? And uh, we're targeting women ages 25 to 45, because uh, beyond that, women normally wear outfits that they already have in their closet, and primarily South Asian women within the U.S., but um, that will always be ever-expanding. Uh, we are going after entire weddings as a whole. So something that I've learned over time is, is that many South Asian brides have PTSD from their wedding. And it's just from outfit sourcing alone. Because not only do they have to find 10 outfits for themselves, right? Then they have to do the family. Then they have to do the bridal party. And then they have all these people messaging that they've invited as wedding guests. And as you know, the average South Asian wedding does not have 120 guests, right? <laughs> <laughs> Times up by five or sometimes even 10. Um, and, and so it's, it's a lot of fielding of questions. And so we want to take that burden off of a bride's plate it's it should be an enjoyable time and they shouldn't be stressing out over what their friend from college from 15 years ago is going to wear you know so. <laughs> no that's uh that's interesting so going back to this uh data, have you had um have you done like a like a alpha or a beta test or anything like this like running this super manually got any feedback had any friends you ran this with we're currently in beta right now, so gotcha. we're sourcing outfits and we're doing it uh, total manual. Um, and it's not been easy because it's not, um, you know, trying to get these outfits from the designers who are, you know, notoriously unreliable. Again, that's a, that's something that we're trying to solve, right? Is not having not. Um, so customers don't have to work with the designers one on one. It's, you know, it, or for those that don't know about South Asian designers that are um, tuning in, you can't just go to a website, order a size four and get it shipped in a week or even three weeks, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's a long, daunting process. So we are doing that manually times 100, right? <laughs> so um, I've, you know... I haven't learned too much. Um, you know, everybody's just super excited. There's not a day that goes by that I don't get a message now of women begging for clothing because they need, need it so badly and they're tired of spending, you know, dropping three grand on on a wedding with outfits they're never going to wear. It's just taking up space in their in their guest bedroom closet. Hmm. So let's, uh, you know, touching base on that. Like, you know, you talk a little bit about the business side, the, especially the crossing the ethnic, uh, ethnic boundaries of, of sourcing things, uh, the the, uh, the artist collectives that you're, you're trying to trying to broach into, but um, what about the technical side? You know, uh, you know, uh, was there any struggle there technically? Did you have to? Are you building your own like um, like web app system? Um, are you you know using some other existing platform? Like, how are you navigating the technology side? So I had, when I first started working on this, Robbie, I had all these grandiose plans, going to build an app, I'm going to build all this technology. And, and then I just had to pare down, pare down, pare down, pare down. <laughs> and now I'm left with like uh, a scotch tape uh, house made out of a uh, deck of cards, you know, mm. because that's, that's what investors want us to do. They want us to do as, as much no code or low code as possible right to prove out the model and then eventually add in the technology so i have so many um ideas that i want to implement in ter terms of tech because the rental industry needs help as, as a whole um i we're um without getting giving away too much of the sauce we um we're we're assuring uh, sizing 
to to make sure that one feels confident in um in the outfit they wear because you know what about sizing right if you go on rent a runway most of their most of their reviews their negative reviews are about sizing right i don't know as a woman as a user uh, whether or not i fit in a size two or an eight and it just depends on the designer and it shouldn't be like that. Hmm. So we're actually standardizing sizing. So every designer is going to fit our metrics. And that is uh, a part of our secret sauce that I just let out. Um, but the on the tech side, we're also going to help ensure, uh, feel confident nobody else is going to wear the same outfit as you. Talk about another rental hesitancy. You go on a website, you want to rent something, but wait a minute, what, what are the other guests wearing? Right. I don't know if they've rented it and I don't want to show up in the same outfit as them. So eventually, once we prove our model, we're going to build tech components like that, you know, get off uh, somebody else's server and have our own SaaS platform. So many, many things to come. And then lastly, um, we want this to feel fully immersive. This should be an enjoyable experience. So we're doing playing around with a lot of new technology where you can pick up your phone and it's called 3D imaging where you can um, like blast out an outfit in your living room and you can almost like reach out and touch it. It's the coolest thing. Um, there's, there's companies doing it like Wayfair where you can show your couch in the living room or Adidas, I believe you can show tennis shoes and you can actually try the shoes on, which yeah. is really cool. So we're implementing stuff like that. Yeah, augmented reality is being is phenomenal right now. Um, a lot of a lot of brands, especially retail brands, are are championing a lot of product on this. I've seen that what you're talking about with Adidas and and, and now Nike, they have these augmented reality uh, app. You can you know you take your stick your foot out and the shoe kind of fits <laughs> fits around it. You can see it, how it look feels around you, uh, which is really really cool, right? Um, with clothing, it's um it's more interesting. I think it's more interesting because people are trying to make like 3D virtual models of themselves or consumers so they can apply like you know things on top of these models so you can see how it looks like on you but the challenge with that is you know you need somehow a 360 kind of model of yourself so you can the, the system can do that but uh you already working with this is, is really great so let's uh talk a little bit about that you're launching the 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 the, the website uh i think you said next week right mm -hmm. uh and then you're, you're you're scaling that with the word of mouth you already have a core group of users already been even already working with in this beta Right, seems to be like you know you're kind of like you know on the move. You figured this out. How long has this trajectory been? Like since idea to to this point, how long did it take you? Well, we had COVID in the mix, right? So yeah. our our trajectory was much longer. It's been about a year and a half, and uh, we obviously couldn't launch mid mid COVID. Um, but it, you know, it's honestly been a blessing because as you hear advice given to entrepreneurs all the time, go to market, go to market as quick as you can, right? And so we actually had the blessing of, of having some time to sort of hash things out and learn from from prior companies as well. We're, we're definitely not the first rental, uh, South Asian rental company uh, that started this. We're just doing it a little differently, so. Yeah, um, okay. So now you established the technology, you kind of understand the business, you understand the business, you have the market, you, you know, you got all these kick check pieces. Right. Let's talk about like, you know, uh, the future. Uh, what does this look like to you? Like, you know, uh, mapped out five, 10 years ago in the future. Like, um, you know, is this meant to be like a uh, run from anywhere or is it meant to be a highly localized? Like, how do, you, how do you see this thing growing? Well, 10 years from now, I hope to be uh, having my own fund where I'm funding other women or BIPOC founders. 
And I hope for this to be either we're acquired by somebody like Rent a Runway or we acquire Rent a Runway. <laughs> <laughs> and when we just really redefine um, fashion. And and that's putting soul back into uh, fashion. You know, I'm not from this industry, but I've always hesitated. I've always wanted to be a designer. I never went to design school, but I always wanted to. And and the reason, well, w one way that I view the fashion fashion industry is so superficial, and I can't stand that. But but so so many people love fashion because it's very expressive, right? So we're, we really want to advocate putting like heart and soul back into fashion and, and give credit where credit is due to these designers. Um, we're even looking about making our own private label and having fashion students uh, create kind of like their little own capsule collection and then you can rent that, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's what this is about. So I really hope to see us in five to 10 years just embracing all cultures and all walks of life instead of such a small microcosm of people. I love that. So you talked about the social impact, um, you know, when we first started this and, uh, and we'll come back to this. Let's jump into that. Um, you know, you, you talked a lot about, you know, trafficking and, and, and uh, the, the social impact side of the uh, side of, like the, of uh, the textile business, right? Can we take a, a pause from the business side to talk about that? Like, what does that look like to you? Like, um, what's the concern? Um, in terms of the textile business, I mean, we all know how, how detrimental the, the earth's state of affairs is, right? Mm -hmm. um, most people don't know that clothing is actually the number two thing that's in our landfills. Clothing is the number two thing in our landfills. And yeah. we're making so much of it now, you can hardly even donate to the charity centers. And, um, you know, there's plenty of documentaries out there to learn that you can't even you know, send the, this clothing to third world countries, third world countries, it's there, it's going to their landfills. They don't need this clothing. Um, what's really exciting to see is that thread up, which is a online, um, resale store. It's like basically like an online garage sale. They come out with financial report every year and what they're stating is that resale. So we're talking secondhand stores, um, and also like Poshmark and Depop is expected to outperform fast fashion by one and a half times the revenue within the next couple of years. So we're talking resale is, is going to uh, do more revenue than H&M and, and Zara's and that sort of stuff, which is a game changer. Mm. And, and, and then rental is expected to double in the next couple of years as well. So we really are getting out of this excessive um, consumerism. And, but you also see fashion companies getting on board with this, right? So here in the U.S., like Nordstrom is now doing a secondhand thing, which is really interesting. Um, independent labels like J. Crew, maybe J. Crew, I can't remember off the top of my head. But at one point, American Eagle of all stores was renting out their clothing, which I thought, are you kidding me? But uh, yeah, I don't know if I would rent like one of those $12 t-shirts, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it's good to see. Yeah. Okay, cool. So sorry, going back to this, uh, the, the social impact um, side of things, right? So um, in retail, we, we saw like the rise uh, with like the rise of uh, Tom Shoes, the idea of the social impact, how powerful it could be, right? To, for a brand and, and, and for, uh, the, for a company, if it, if it matches like a, a target audience that really, uh, really matters, uh, cares about. So Tom's Shoes, 
the idea that uh, you know every time you buy one of uh, one of their one of their shoes, they donate one or two pairs uh, to to a child that really deserves uh, needs it. And that social impact side of things really drove the side of the business. Right, people felt had a really good feeling about interacting with this brand, with that that it's going to help somebody. And for the founder, it's one of the main reasons they started this. Right, it was like to utilize this uh, the business as a as a as a means for social impact to make impacts that they really care about. And for uh, for the founder, it's particularly the amount of people he's seen that don't have shoes uh, in the countries he's visited. Right, so. Uh, we're seeing now more more companies and founders creating businesses almost as growth as uh, as vehicles for something else right as uh, you know for uh, for really for um to carry out values that they really believe in um so you you spoke uh, you know you highlighted a little bit about this in the beginning can you talk a little more about that like the values behind things you know you, you spoke about how um you know provide more equity provide more transparency uh can you talk a little bit more about uh, the values you have behind this yeah, uh, so our brand pillars are, are iconic, expressive, and intentional. We are first and foremost a purpose-driven business. We have so much intention behind everything that we do, and uh, I mean it's it, it's 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 uh, required at this mm. point. The 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 businesses that are that are purpose-driven outperform the ones that aren't that just focus on capitalism making a profit and selling. And that is the way of the future. Like if you don't have a cause attached to your business, you're, you're going to drown at some point or you might do well, but then you're going to drop off eventually. And 75% of people, there's a survey out there, right? <laughs> Take it as you will. But it, it, this survey says that 75 people would rather choose to uh, spend money that's at a more purpose-driven company than not. And, and so we're, you know, human trafficking has always been a huge passion of mine since I was very young and I've always helped out in some sort of fashion. I was, um, no pun intended. I was, uh, do I had a part-time job at, um, a human trafficking company before COVID and that shut down because of COVID. Um, but we want to help within the garment industry and, but I just want to give you some facts on human trafficking. So, um, most people again, don't realize that the U S is one of the top three countries in the world for human trafficking. Uh, first world country is one of the top three in the entire world. So it's the U.S., the Philippines, and Mexico. And and so many people don't realize, like here in the U.S., how bad it is. Like, you know, again, me as a, as a female founder and feeling marginalized, I have, it really puts things into perspective, right? Because people that are trafficked are in the worst situations possible. I, I met this woman, her name's Nasreen, and she's uh, from Kathmandu, and she was trafficked as a child. And she uh, worked in a sweatshop. She does not know her age. She thinks she's around age 25, 26. And um, she you know, was able to escape. But we want to help children like her that you know, their voices are muted. Like we can shout and protest all we want, but these children, their voices are muted. And, and it's just, you know, it's so disheartening to think about and, and to think that they probably made t-shirts that we wore, mm. right? So uh, we want to help. There's, there's, um, there's also a, an organization in Calcutta in India called New Light. 
And uh, Ormi Basu is this amazing woman. She actually divorced her husband uh, because he didn't want her to work. She's like, uh, no, I'm going to tell you. So she started an organization for all the, the women that are prostitutes in the red light district, which is legal. Prostitution is legal there. But what she wanted to do was prevent their children from then going into prostitution because that is very natural thing for them to do because it's a money-making thing. And so she has this little um, setup, not a little, but this setup for the children to be able to sleep there and to be able to go to school there. And, um, and we're going to give them funds to help give them give these children education. And then so they can get certificates to vocational jobs, right? Where they will then uh, be making more money than they would be prostituting. And then their mothers will be okay with that. Mm. But can you imagine just like there there are so many things like that 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 that, that just need our help and um, a lot of people sadly aren't talking about it because met um, in the U.S. Um, you know the clients are people that are people in power right this is a very uh, patriarchal uh, sort of issue that needs to be uprooted out of our institutions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, especially with like human trafficking, prostitution, like these kind of darker, darker webs of society, you see that it's generally like supported by the society in some way, like the structures that be kind of like allow it to be and some way benefit from it, from from these systems uh, operating uh, without without directly uh, being liable for them. Right. I mean, one of the one of the greatest things about corporations or even, even private enterprises is the ability to shield risk from individuals. And our systems kind of seems completely built by, built for that, right? To shield risk from individuals, especially those that are in power, from directly being you know, accountable for some of the some of the worst parts of ourselves, of our society that we see around ourselves, right? Um, you know, some there's a lot of movies, uh, you know, the subplots behind movies being this, right? Is generally the people who are in power, who are who are positioned to be once the saviors of the world, who are indirectly somehow benefiting from the systems that they they support. Right, they're the group of uh, you know investors that they're part of, the, the group of friends that they have, someone or somewhere is benefiting from uh, you know operating these kind of chains. And when you look at the world, like it, we you know we we kind of have this thing that like you know yes, because we have lasers and smartphones, like we're so advanced, but like everything was kind of built on top of you know existing structures and existing things, and we've got, and everything's kind of like a mess if you really stop and look at it. And we have to systematically every once in a while like reformat this mess and, 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 and shift through it and re, redo that. I think COVID has been a great example of, like really been a great catalyst to this, right? Our entire healthcare network is now being, you know, retrofitted, right? Uh, our financial systems now being retrofitted with, through FinTech, right? And uh, now, uh, you know, through uh, logistics and, and transparency, um, the, the shifts that are happening there uh, you know, we're now able to see what's going on in our, in our supply, global supply chains a little better and, and monitor it more because now it's at risk, right? So uh, kudos to you and what you're doing because by even looking at things through this lens and framework of how you can support and move this, you're threading the needle. You're, you're pushing the envelope, right? As we get back to a, settled, a settling society and, and reformatting what, uh, you know, the post-COVID world is going to look like, we're going to need more people thinking like you are about like how can we take capitalism, one of the most powerful instruments humanity's ever created, and turn it towards the good of society, right? These social enterprises, social capitalism, I think, is uh, needs to be the format that capitalism, uh, you know, in the 21st century needs to run on. 
Yeah. There's, there's so much work to ahead of us. And, 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 you know, when it comes back to fundraising, again, I talk about that a lot because I'm just experiencing it right now. And, you know, some women ask me like, Oh, you know, we're going to see so much. Stride. I said, no, we're not going to see strides in my lifetime. I hopefully will make it better for my granddaughter. Right. But within the next two generations, we won't see any sort of level set whatsoever. Mm. Um, and and even in trafficking, I mean, if you see how the, the trajectory is going, like if we if we improve this dire uh, situation by three percent every year, well, how many years is it going to take to to abolish it? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, we're talking hundreds of years out. Yeah. Yeah. If ever. <laughs> Oh man. Um well I I think there's I think like the way uh humanity shifts like there's we go through these like huge shifts right like when when things go wrong especially like these kind of uh this this covid situation showing that right like like the the great depression the great recession and now the, uh, the covid financially the covid situation has been called the great dispersion where uh money is being shifted from certain asset classes into other asset classes really fast. And this is a, this is a, like you know financially we're not actually the economy's not losing money right like even though GDP of nations are going down growth is going down we're actually seeing more of a shift of money there's a lot of people making capital right now right there's a lot of new businesses being launched and even um, economics have, have noted that moving out of COVID it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be small business that benefit or it's going to be new businesses right. Uh, you know, large companies right now are raising capital like crazy. Any established business right now are taking advantage of uh, of low uh, of low interest rates and, and and capital to like you know absorb that. Like a lot of a lot of the biggest companies have almost doubled in size. Some of the richest people have become even richer, right? Well, uh, and uh, and the disparity between the two have gotten larger and larger. And and when you see these kind of systems come to place, I think there is an opportunity for like an economic snapback, right? Where people are like demand more and people who have are willing to, to give more, uh, you know, to, 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 to equal things out. Um, there's an opportunity for, for like a snapback and social capitalism, I think is the best thing. Like how do we use uh, the power of capitalism, but use it as like a, as a, as a, a scalpel, a tool to reshape society. Right. And the lens you're looking at, I think is super important. So if you, if we can get like a, core group of people who actually care about that issue while experiencing the pain points you are and whether by you know oh i i care about what what lindsay and her company's doing uh i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna keep renting from her i'm gonna keep subscribing to her i'm gonna keep you know keep uh, keep supporting this i think that's the kind of economy that we're moving towards right where people are becoming more social now than ever through the internet right mm -hmm. and companies need to create like almost almost like a, a micro communities around themselves people who really believe what they believe right who participate and and buy from them and support them not just because they're a great company on the optics wise but they carry the values uh that they they of the community they belong to um and i think uh, that's what we need to get is become more tribal as uh, as business uh, as launching new companies and businesses is figure out Who's our tribe and who really who really believes what we believe and can support us in this, in this venture? Yeah, I mean, you see a lot of especially after what happened this summer in the U.S. And, um, you know, even like small business Saturday right after Thanksgiving, where like, you know, people talk about like put your mo like money talks. Right. Uh, support BIPOC founders, support small businesses, because we need to give that wealth back to these people. Um, you know, again, only 2% of funding goes towards women and BIPOC. 
And that's so, so, so what happens, right? When women get funded, the white men just fund the women. So then they just make more money, right? So some uh, black CCs, and you can, you can learn about this on black Twitter, which is a thing um, if people don't know about it. And I highly recommend going in there. And there's tons of clubhouse rooms talking about this um, called black PC is like, don't even get like a white male founder to fund you, which is also even more difficult. Right. But then that's where we see like crowdfunding coming into play where um, when you talk about the wealth disparity, right. Increasing, well, this is one way to redistribute the wealth where people will be able to invest in a company at a much more financially feasible uh, modality of like $1,000 or $100 or even $25. That is how we can start the ripple effect of redistribution of wealth. And we're going to see a lot more of this crowdfunding stuff come to play in the, in the next couple decades. Absolutely. I agree. Absolutely. Right. Uh, that term you keep mentioning, BIPOC, um, what, does that, what does that mean, stand for? Uh, yeah. Black Indigenous People of Color. Gotcha. Yeah. Black Indigenous People of Color. Okay. Um, yeah, it's good to know. Uh, you mentioned a few times and I, I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't clear on that. But, uh, you know, right now, um, you know, if you look at social media, Clubhouse, um, uh, Twitter, all of that, it seems like, you know, especially uh, like the world seems more divided than ever. Everyone's kind of at everyone's throats about all these different issues and what side of each issue is there, you know, it's right or wrong. What do you feel about the, especially being American, uh, the polarization of society right now? The polarization of society. I feel like, Ravi, uh, January of 2021, that certainly changed. Uh, that everybody felt a sigh of release, relief when our prior administration finally left. Um, we won't see the last of him. He, he's going to run in 2024. Um, but at least we can take a, a break. We in, in the U.S. just I, I can't tell you that the air just feels thinner. Um, you know, obviously we're going through, um, you know, hate crimes with uh, Asian Americans right now, which is an issue. Um, I, you know, it, it sucks. It, it's really hard to say all this because, you know, just this week we had another murder by cop and, um, you know, but there are being strides, there are strides being made, right? Um, it, it's, that's such a tough answer. It's, stuff, it's such a tough question to answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I like I like that answer, though, about the collective side, especially for being from New York. Uh, I know New York, especially, you know, had a collective side when uh, the administra administration changes. Um, you know, so speaking of this, like moving forward, uh, you know, vaccinations are rolling out and uh, hopefully lockdowns are lifting. Like we in Toronto right now, you know, our entire province is under lockdown. Like this is our third one. Canada, I think right now is the highest country in the world to be uh, infection rates wise. It's crazy, right? It just happened out of nowhere, and uh, and, and and the United States, you know, is now fully locked in and, and going uh, going hard into uh, you know uh, fighting COVID and getting and getting back to recovery. Um, you know, what do you what do you see for yourself? Like, um, are you working remotely on the company? Do you do you imagine this company being a remote only organization as as we go back to you know? Uh, a more vaccinated world and, and uh, things opening up back up again. How do you plan to operate as an organization? 
Yeah, well, funny enough, our business model entirely relies on events and in-person gatherings, right? And 80% of them went away this last year. Uh, But New York Times just came out with two two, uh, articles that says, quote, the wedding boom is coming. And we're starting to see that now, which is amazing. We, we, because of COVID, uh, the entire city left. Like I'm talking, it was apocalyptic in New York. And just to give you a viewpoint, we... Uh, we, Shiv and I, used to live in financial district right across from Wall Street, um, New York Stock Exchange. And they, there's about 20 units on every floor. And there were two of us left out of 20 units on our wow. floor. That's how dead it is. And, um, you know, the, so we just scored, you know, a really good deal on an apartment where we're now, we now run our operations on the first floor in this apartment. And um, we're meeting in person, the employees um, that I have one, you know, she just graduated college and moved to New York City um, to, you know, take up the opportunity of working with me on preserve, which is amazing. And we do have a couple remote, we plan on going back into the into the world, but it's going to take a long time. Um, Some people say that, you know, it's going to take five years for for the the city to get the tourism back which i believe i mean everybody's gone some of the buildings here are offering five months free five months free rent in new york city so now's the time y'all if you want to move to new york now's the time (laughs) yeah me and my wife were talking about this it's like if uh, we were at the beginning of our marriage like this would be an amazing time to like live downtown anywhere right like you know you get amazing rent but like you know as long as you get vaccinated and like as things open back up, you could lock down some great values there, right? As uh, especially if you time the time the economy really well. Um, but really interesting about New York, you know, like uh, like being from Canada, we, we you know we hear a lot of stuff about like New York being dead. New York is dead, right? So I, I think you just put that into context a lot more, uh, especially with the city emptying out like that. What does it look like uh, for the surrounding um, economy? Like you know, uh, the idea of being uh, New York is like economically dead. Do you feel like? Some of those neighbors who left might not come back. Like they might just move to a suburb and, and experience that. Only time will tell, but a lot of them left for good. Yeah, because yeah. they're not required to, to come into the city anymore. So a lot of them lived here just because they had to work here. And, and now that they get the ability to not have to work in the city, they actually choose not to live in the city, which is really interesting. You see some some in some um, neighborhoods, people, you know, are like 25 years old. So they just move back home. Um, and then you're going to see uh, the people that you do see in the city are very young. Like I'm talking like maybe two days older than 18 i swear to god like where did y'all come from like i think you just graduated from high school um but those are the only people left i and you know some people have you know some wealth right so new york city is their second home or they're staying at their second home right now but they might come back i don't know only time will tell there's there's a lot of theories going on right now interesting well, Lindsay, this has been really interesting. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your perspectives on inno- innovation and uh, what's going on in the world. Um, I, had, I had a great time. You know, fashion, especially the fashion tech industry, is really uh, interesting because um, it's not, you know, regularly discussed when it comes to innovation or tech. But this, it's built on such a, a legacy of systems, right? With logistics and uh, with the um, the the materials needed and with uh, the talent and artistry that's involved, 
Um, so, so really, um, you know, looking forward to keeping in touch. Um, you know, we, we love having recurring guests on, on, our, on our episodes, um, you know, every six months or so come back on and uh, give us an update. I'd love to hear more about, um, you know, how you guys grow and, uh, and as uh, New York recovers what that looks like. Yeah, well, I look forward to sharing my successes and failures with you, uh, mistakes with you in six months. <laughs> awesome. Great. Um, stick around for a few minutes. Uh, we'll do a quick debrief. Uh, but for everyone who tuned in, thank you. And this is the show.